Thank you, Steve, for that song. You know, the song <clears throat> there at the end of the, of, the, of the song said, there's so much we don't understand. That's so true. I'm convinced today that many of us who have sat in church, including many of us who have preached for years, have become somewhat dull to the facts about the cross. And as a result of that, we've begun to live our lives with much complacency. It's hard to really understand praise and worship. We're living for so many other things. We are glorying in so many other things. This world has busied our lives to the point where it's almost as if we have to be drawn to the attention of the cross or we'd miss it. And though Jordan is right as to what this cross is a picture of, and we'll talk about that at the end of the message, there's much to understand about the cross. And so what I'd like to do in the next few moments is begin this sermon series with a message about the cross of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's start with the death. Let's start with the first part of the gospel. And so the purpose of this gathering today is to hold up the cross of Jesus Christ, to lift it up, lift it up high. Paul said in Galatians 6.14 that he said, I will not glory in anything apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me quote you the verse exactly. He said, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that, that, that deserves the credit for, for anything that I am, anything that I accomplish, all the glory goes to the cross. God forbid that I should glory in anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. So what is the cross? Well, just to begin our, our, our worship guide notes today, the cross is the signature symbol of the central event of the history of civilization. The cross is the the signature symbol of the central event in the history of civilization. Now think about how strong that statement is because until Constantine in the 4th century, the cross was not allowed as a symbol of Christianity. For 400 years, you would not have seen a cross. But today, you see the cross everywhere. Artists often depict a cross in a painting. You will often see people wearing jewelry that has the cross on it. Or a preacher wear a lapel button that has a a cross on it. You might see a baseball player come to home plate and just before he steps up into the plate, the, the batter's box, he'll do this and give the sign of the cross. But we're not talking about, I thought about Easter's here, right? You'll go to Walmart and see a chocolate cross that you eat that tastes really sweet. But today I want to draw your attention to the real meaning of the cross. It is so much more than chocolate at Walmart. It is so much more than just a a symbol on a piece of jewelry or a t-shirt. I want to elevate the cross this morning as a church family. And I want to do that using the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the Gospels are interesting because every one of the Gospels speaks of this event. This signature symbol 
this central event in the history of civilization, we are going to look at the book of Matthew to draw four pictures of the cross. Straight from Matthew 27. We're going to begin in verse 15 with Christ on the cross substituting. Substituting. What does it mean when Christ is on the cross substituting? Look, if you would, please, at verse 15. And let's walk through this passage as we see God orchestrating the service, even through the songs. Now, at the feast, you see, that's where that daddy and that little boy were going. The lamb. The lamb that got away. They were going to a feast. The feast of the Passover. This was an event that would be bigger than, you know, you could put Christmas and New Year's together. And you would not come close to the, to the focal point of their annual celebration of their faith. And so at the feast, the governor said, we're going to release to you a prisoner. Whoever you want. <clears throat> See, every year, there was one prisoner that the Romans would release. Because the Romans were occupying the nation of Israel at that time, there was a lot of unrest and a lot of chaos going on and arrests that were being made and many of them were unjust and many of them were just and so they were, but they would always release one just to kind of appease the people just to kind of smooth things over just a little bit because things, there was so much tension going on and oftentimes the releasing of a prisoner would would ease some of that tension and so the governor says I'll release a prisoner which which one would you like to me for me to release One of the prisoners they had, verse 16, was a very notable prisoner. He was notorious. He was famous. He was the son of Sam. I mean, when you said this guy's name, everybody knew who you were talking about. That's how evil he was. His name? Barabbas. And so Pilate thought for sure, hey, if I bring Barabbas out, they're going to choose him. I mean, you know, I, I don't really see why they're even, they even so upset about Jesus. I mean, he's a just man. He's done nothing wrong. So, so I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to offer to them Barabbas. Verse 17, therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate says, Who will I that I, that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called the Christ? Who do I release, the son of Sam or Jesus? He knew for envy they had delivered him. He knew their motive was envy. He thought maybe he could distract them with Barabbas. When he sat down in the judgment seat, he got a message from his wife. And Pilate's wife said, Honey, I've had some bad dreams about this man. I don't feel good about this. I don't think we should go any further. I mean, listen, hey, whatever you do, don't do anything to hurt this man. He's a just man. And and there's some things that I've suffered as a result of him in a dream. Pilate received that warning from his wife. But, verse 20, the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude. The religious leaders began to walk amongst the crowd and rouse them up. Hey, start chanting Barabbas. Start chanting Start chanting, release Barabbas. Start chanting, crucify Jesus. Hey, hey, let's, let's, let's choose Barabbas to be released. Start chanting, Barabbas, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Can you imagine as they go around the crowd and get the crowd all going here, the chief priests and the elders, they, they say uh, to the crowd, they persuade the crowd that they should ask Barabbas and, my version says, destroy Jesus. Study that verse a little bit. Study that word a little bit. Literally means annihilate. 
We're not just talking about a little beating. We're talking about total annihilation. And the governor answered and says, Whither of the two will that I release into you? And the crowd cries, Barabbas! And Pilate says, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? What do you want me to do with Jesus? I mean, come on, really? And they all said, Let him be crucified. Annihilate him. Destroy him. And the governor says, Why? <laughs> what evil hath he done? The crowd cried louder. Let him be crucified. Christ on the cross substituted. Jesus took Barabbas' place. And you do not understand the gospel until you understand you are Barabbas. You don't understand what the gospel is until you understand Jesus, listen to me church, Jesus took your place. Jesus died in your place. I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on that cross in disgrace. But Jesus, 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 God's Son took my place. I am the person who should have died on that cross, not Jesus. I'm the one who broke God's law. I should have been crucified. You can't understand the gospel until you understand substitution. Let me illustrate. I'm going to take Romans 6.23a. And I want you to pay close attention on the screen to that part of the verse. Because that part of the verse is what you deserve. The wages of sin is death, period. That's it, church. That's it. That's us. I deserve that. I deserve that. That's what you're going to write down in your, in your notes. I deserve that. Now, no, if you don't write that down, you don't understand the gospel. <laughs> this is very important. There's no one in this building who can claim to know Christ and be saved and, and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ until you understand that's what you and I deserve. We are Barabbas. Oh, I'm not that bad. No, no. Hey, for all have sinned. This is not about Phariseeism. This is not about, I'm not that bad. I don't do anything really that bad. I'm not, I'm not as bad as he. I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as Barabbas. Listen, we are all sinners today. We're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. I deserve that. I apologize that your notes say 624A. It's 623B. Here it is. But the gift of God, same verse. Thank God for this, because I deserve that. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And next to that, I want you to write down, Jesus took my place. Jesus took my place. He died for me. Substitution. That's the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It's a big word for this. Jesus took my place. I should have died on that cross. I should have hung there. I should have bled and died. But Jesus subbed for me. He subbed for me. He went in the game for me. He died for me. 
We see it further taught in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse 21 where the Bible says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We just sang that a moment ago. Jesus Messiah. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. I don't know what sports you like. I don't know what you think's amazing. Maybe it's a Michael Jordan slam 360 dunk. You know what I mean? You ever seen him? You ever seen one of these? You ever seen the dunk contest? This year it was nothing short of amazing. I mean, when Aaron Gordon of the Orlando Magic did one particular dunk, my whole family stood up and went, oh, oh. Oh, did you see that? Rewind, 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 rewind. <laughs> Let me tell you what is much more amazing. That cross right there. That cross right there. I'm telling you, I look at that. I'm in awe. I am in awe of that cross. I owe Jesus everything. I'm going to worship him and praise him and honor him with my life all the days of my life. Why? Because I'm lifting high the cross. It may cost me my life. And I want to be okay with that. Because the cross is worth it. You see, he took my place. He made, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ on the cross. So ask yourself the question. What's he doing there? What, what is Christ doing there? Answer. Taking your place. That's what he's doing there. That's why he's hanging on the cross. He's subbing for you. You should be there. But you're not. Because he is. He was. Number two. I want you to write this down. Christ on the cross, scandalizing. Christ on the cross, scandalizing. The second picture we see here of the cross is found in Matthew 27, beginning in 24, where Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing. Pilate couldn't get anywhere with it. He's trying. He remembers what his wife said, right? Don't you dare. Honey, I'm telling you. He's a just man. I've had a dream. I'm suffering many things. Don't do this. Pilate's going through it. He's being pulled back and forth. You want Brad? Why? He's done nothing wrong. Pilate is struggling. But when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, here's his answer. Give me a little water. Give me a little water. I'll wash my hands of this. (laughs) Okay, take him. Are you serious? This is an outrageous scandal. And what I mean by that is this. What happened on the cross of Jesus Christ is an outrageous offense no matter what vantage point you look at it from. Doesn't matter. Whatever vantage point you try to look at it from. Pilate. Take Pilate, for instance. If you look at it from Pilate's vantage point, it is scandalous. It's scandalous. You look at at it from verse 27 viewpoint the jews the the those that uh, the pagan crowd that crucified him look at verse 27 then the soldiers of the governor took jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him a whole band of soldiers 
Are you serious? Jesus. Who when Peter drew his sword and cut Malchus's ear off in the garden just a few hours ago? Jesus. I don't know at all, Peter. Hey, hope. Takes the ear. Give me here, look. I love you, buddy. Jesus, a band of soldiers. Do you know how many were in a band? Six hundred. Six hundred soldiers. Six hundred. They get six hundred. This is scandalous. A whole band. Look at verse 20. They strip him. And they put a crown of thorns in his head. Verse 29. Latter part of 29. They bowed the knee before him. They mocked him. They spit on him. Verse 30. They punched him in the face. Verse 30. They mocked him. They took his robe from him. Verse 31. They crucified him. Verse 35. They passed by while he was on the cross and reviled him. Wagging their heads. Making fun of him. This is outrageous. Scandalizing. Why? Why the irrational hatred of Jesus Christ? Why the outrageous, over-the-top, irrational hatred of Jesus Christ? By the way, it goes on still today. It's all around us. It's unexplainable. It's scandalizing. Let me tell you something, church. You lift high the cross of Jesus Christ, and you'll know very soon it's coming to America. It's coming now. It's already here, but it's coming in in, in much more violent persecution like it is around the world when people pronounce the name of Jesus. You've heard me tell the story of the little Somalian girl over in Somalia. I told this years ago. I was reading World Magazine. I'm just reading World Magazine, which is a conservative news magazine. I come across a picture of a girl with no hands. She's got two nubs, just two nubs. And I'm intrigued by the picture. So I look at the little, little you know, sometimes when you see a picture, they have a little, small little caption. And it just said, they cut my right hand off first. I fell to the ground. They cut my left hand off. I said, i got to read this article. So I read the article of a 13-year-old girl in Somalia who lived in a village that was visited by Christian missionaries. The Christian missionaries took, made their home there for several months, learned the language, and gave the community the gospel. Several in, 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 in little, um, Asatu was her name, Asatu, I-S-A-T-U. Several in Asatu's family accepted Jesus along with Asatu. 13 years old. She accepted Christ. She, she took Jesus. The missionaries left. A few days after the missionaries left, the radical Islamist terrorists came to their community. Walked their way through, through the community. Went to Asatu's little hut where she had about 19 family members living in one little space. They walked in there with machetes. And they said in their language, interpreted in World Magazine, you renounce the name of Jesus or we'll chop your hands off. And then, from the caption to the article, they cut my right hand off first. I fell to the ground. They cut my left hand off. 
Here's a girl, 13 years old, holding up her nubs because somebody hates Jesus. I'm going to tell you, church, hey, they hate him today. I, I was, I was uh, praying at a little gathering of leaders in our community, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of naive. I just pray and pray out loud, and, and they ask me to come forward as a pastor. I pray in Jesus' name. When I'm all done, somebody walks up to me and says, man, that took guts. I thought it was a buffet. I thought, honestly, he meant it took guts to go up the third time. Honestly, I didn't know what he was talking about. What? Guts. I didn't know what he meant. I promise you, I, didn't, I had no idea. I said, I, what do you mean, guts? I, I, you know, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand. He goes, pray in Jesus' name. This happened in Hot Springs. I said, I always pray in Jesus' name. He said, that takes guts in a meeting like this. He goes, there's people here that, they're not Christians. They don't, you know, they, they like us to pray general prayers where we don't name Jesus. So I just want to thank you. I'm a Christian too. Thanks for having guts to pray in Jesus' name. Can I tell you something? Church, there is a scandalizing offense of the cross that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we lift it up, will experience what I'm talking about. Number three, Christ on the cross, substituting, scandalizing, thirdly, and obviously, suffering. Christ on the cross, suffering. Look at verse 35. Scripture says, <clears throat> and they crucified him. And they crucified him. Four words. That's it. Just four words. And they crucified him. And pretty much most of us, oh yeah, that's right, they, that, that's, that's when they nailed him to the cross. Well, let me give you a medical doctor's description of crucifixion. Just so, just so you have an idea of, of what it is. So the next time we, we think about the cross, we understand exactly what those four words, and they crucified him. A medical doctor provides this physical description. The cross is placed on the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist deep into the wood. Quickly he moves on the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through each of the, of the arches of the feet, leaving the knees fixed. The victim is now crucified as he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist. Excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid his stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nails through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As his arms fatigue, cramps sweep through his muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, and throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs, in the bloodstream, and the cramps subside. 
partially. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself up or to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-wrenching cramps, intermediate partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The, uh, the loss of tissue fluid has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissue. The tortured lungs are making frantic efforts to grasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissue. Finally, he allows his body to die. And all of that the Bible records in four words. And when they crucified him. And when they crucified him. Isaiah 52 verse 14 describes it like this. As many were astonished, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. We had the Lord's Supper a few weeks ago on a Sunday night, and, and I was instructed, and I agree, I did. I, I, we showed some pretty graphic pictures. It wasn't horrible, and nobody was mad or angry. They just asked with children there if we could either maybe have a children's church or something because it was, it was pretty graphic. It wasn't horrible, but it was definitely graphic. The pictures came from the movie, The Passion of Christ. But let me say this. The passion of Christ is a toned down version of what really happened. His form was beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, you would not even recognize him to be a human being. It was just a, it looked so horrible. In other words, what we show on a screen to try to give us a glimpse doesn't compare to the suffering that Jesus took when he took your sins and my sins on his shoulders. Suffering of Christ. The suffering. But understand this, that the physical suffering was the lesser part. Are you shocked? The physical suffering of Jesus Christ was the lesser part. Notice in verse 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land into the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sambachthani. My God, my God, Father, why have you forsaken me? The only statement on the cross that refers to physical pain is I thirst. That's it. That's it. Jesus did not talk about his physical pain all that much. One time he said I thirst. That's it. But other statements that talked about the separation between the triune Godhead that a finite mind like mine or yours cannot comprehend the separation of God the Father from God the Son. That's why so many times we say, oh, I couldn't do that. Oh, no, no, you know, I, you, 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 you want to take my son to die. I don't, there's no way I couldn't turn my back. Exactly. Who can comprehend 
How the pain of God the Father turning his back on God the Son. My God! The real suffering of the cross was the separation of God the Father from God the Son. That's the pain of the cross. That's the suffering of the cross. You know, it's one thing for Jesus to be abandoned by his disciples. A bunch of weak-willed wimps. The Bible says in one portion of Scripture, maybe you've read it, all the disciples forsook him and fled. All of them. Oh, I wouldn't have done that. Peter said that too. And I'm sure everybody in here is a better Christian than Peter ever thought about being. Every single one of them forsook him. I'm not too shocked. I'm here to tell you sometimes I've forsook him and fled. There's been times I've been weak-willed, Greg. Uh, You know, I don't want to be sarcastic right now. And honestly, I hope everybody feels probably the way that I do because I don't imagine anybody here wants to stand up and say, I've never one time ever backed down. I'm sure we all will stand before God and wish we'd have given him more. I'm not too shocked about the pagan crowd. I mean, they crucified him. I mean, these people were lost. They hated him. They didn't know Christ. They didn't know the Messiah. They, they, they had not trusted in Jesus Christ. It doesn't shock me, the crowd, the pagans. But to do nothing wrong, nothing, to be totally innocent and to have God the Father turn his back on you, that's the suffering of the cross. So the focal point of all of God's word is the cross. The cross. You think about the the gospel, right? We see in Matthew itself about 25 or 26 chapters dealing with, you've got a few verses about his birth, maybe just a 10 or 15, 20, maybe a chapter, maybe. And then you've got 25 chapters, 30 years of his life. And then we tag on at the end of each gospel about a chapter or two To the crucifixion. Everything comes to a screeching halt. And the gospel ends. Number four. Christ on the cross substituting. Christ on the cross scandalizing. Christ on the cross suffering. But why? Why? Why did he die? Why is he hanging on the cross? This is huge. Christ on the cross satisfying satisfying Matthew 27 verse 51 and behold the veil of the temple the curtain of the temple was torn was rent in two from the top to the bottom not the bottom to the top you see if it had been the bottom to the top it might have been man's doing but it was the top to the bottom because it was God that did this he, he tore the, the curtain in two. And when he did, the, the earth quaked, the rocks rent, the graves were opened, bodies of the saints which slept arose. They came out of the graves after his resurrection, went to the holy city, appeared to many. Now when the centurion, verse 54, and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that was done, they were in awe. And here's what they said. Oh, truly, truly, this 
was the Son of God. You see, they understood when that veil was rent in two, the very presence of God was there on that Calvary's hill. No longer do we need, hey, hey, the lamb can run away. We don't need the lamb anymore. Amen. Have a good time, lamb. Go back home. Enjoy the pasture. We don't need to sacrifice any more lambs because the lamb of God took away all the sins of the world. Christ on the cross satisfied the wrath of an almighty God. Amen. You see, God's holiness demanded that. There's no other way. No other way for you and I to be saved. No other way. And when Jesus said, it is finished, our debt was paid in full. Past, present, and future. Sins forgiven forever. Now, in closing, a picture of the cross as a picture of grace. Because, you know, grace is an amazing thing. God's amazing grace comes into picture now that, now that the cross, now that it's finished. Now, what does this mean to us? What does grace mean? Why do we say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound? Why do we worship with such reckless abandon? Why are we sometimes overwhelmed and caught up in the presence of God, or at least we should be? Why? I'll tell you why. Number one, I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 on the screen. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. You know what that means? Listen, that means there was no way out. You understand that? You could do nothing. The power of your sin was too strong for you to do anything about. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. The power of darkness. He delivered us. And translated us unto the kingdom of his dear son. Number one, I want you to notice grace that redeems. Grace that redeems. The scandal of grace. He died in my place. This is outrageous. Hey, Luke, go back to that next verse. In whom we have redemption. Through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, redemption, Christ paid us to God. Our sin can never be held against us because of what Jesus did for us. This is incredible. This is incredible. I mean, this is why you and I today can worship, can, can shout. We're on the winning side. Why? Grace redeemed us. He saved us. If I was to die right now, I know where I'd go. I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven of all my sin. Jesus paid it all. God stepped in and paid the price. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Wow! Number two, and this is very important because if you only know the grace that redeems, You're like an astronaut sitting in the space shuttle on the launching pad. Oh, you're in 
space shuttle. That's good. You passed all the astronaut tests. Congratulations. How's it feel to be sitting in the space shuttle on the launching pad? Feel pretty good? It's about like what it is to know that you're redeemed, but not know anything about the fact that you've been released. You see, grace not only redeems, grace releases. Grace that releases interpreted the power of sin is gone. There is more to this grace than simply a home in heaven. That's why most people, all they can do is just stand, well, I just want to give testimony, I know I'm saved. Is that all you know? Come on! I mean, so many of us, the only thing we can really look back to is this one little decision we made years ago, which is great. That's great. God bless you. Hallelujah. But I want you to know, God's up to much more than that in your life. The power of sin is gone. Look at Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law. I didn't understand that. I used to live by a set of rules. And I could never keep these rules. I mean, these rules, rule after rule after rule. Don't do this, don't do that. I kept messing up. You know what the law does? Basically, the law just, it just reveals the fact that we're a failure. That's all the law does. I am a failure, and I know it. I, I tell you, the law does a good job of reminding me every time I look in the mirror, I'm a failure. But you know what? I'm not under law. I'm under grace. <laughs> Hallelujah. And when you see sin in the mirror and self in the dirt, you're ready for the good news of the grace of God. Gospel Light Baptist Church is not easy on sin. It's amazing, since we've become a grace-driven church, how often people want to criticize that by saying, oh, they're just a bunch, all they preach is grace, you know, love of God, all they do is preach, they're a bunch of liberals over there, you know, they've really compromised. What? Are you serious? Can I tell you, when I got a hold of this thought of being under grace, I don't have to do what sin tells me to do anymore. I already know I can't keep the law, but grace says I can make a choice. When the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And you can choose to do the right thing. You can choose to please God. You can choose to honor God. Grace makes this possible. The power of the gospel blows sin out of your life. And you don't have to live under the curse of that sin. You can live in victory. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. And I'm free, brother. I'm free, sister. I'm not free to sin. I'm free to make a choice to honor my loving God. And then number three, grace that reconciles. You get a hold of this grace that redeems and grace that releases before long, you'll understand grace reconciles and you'll be loving everybody. You'll understand why we love everybody that's in the kingdom of God. Why we love all these churches. You'll understand why we don't point our fingers anymore. You'll understand why we're red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. You'll understand why we don't have an ounce of racism in this church. And if you do, honestly, this may not be the place for you. We're not into that stuff. Why? Look at this verse. It's a, it, 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 there's a lot to this. He's our peace. <clears throat> he is our peace. Jesus, who hath, made, who hath made both one, Jews and Gentiles here in this passage, he's broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Because of the cross, because of the cross, 
He's broken down that which was between us because grace now reconciles us. He's abolished in the flesh, verse 15, the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make of himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both into God, one body, here it is, by the cross. Grace that reconciles. Listen, there should be a care between us that blows the world away. It blows them away. I've never seen anything like it. Man, they, they, the church loves people. They love folks. They care for the community. They want to see people uh, uh, to trust Christ and get their lives back together. They don't care how you come. You can come broken. You, they don't care how you're dressed. You can come any way. They don't care how you look. They just love you. That's grace. That's grace. While the scribes and Pharisees said, stoner. God said, hey, hold up. Who, who's without sin? Cast the first stone. Uh, drop that. Neither do I condemn me. Neither do I condemn me. Go and sin no more. That's grace. That's grace. That's what changes us. If you want to know what's happened to preacher, I'll give you one word. Grace! Grace happened to me. I didn't understand it. I understood law, but I didn't understand grace. It is really amazing, you know. And then number four, and I'm done. Grace that removes, grace that removes, Colossians 2, 13, and you being dead in your sins, you, put your name there, put your name there, and Eric, being dead in my sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened or made alive together with him, and having forgiven you all trespasses, what does that mean to you? I mean, think about that first verse there. He has forgiven you all your trespasses. There's not one sin that Jesus has not removed. You see, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, he blots out. That's just a really weird word for remove. He removes all of your transgressions. And what does he do? He takes it out of the way. By nailing your sin to the cross. That's what he does. That's what Jesus does. You better believe it. Let me ask you a question. Why are only three rows giving him a standing ovation? Let's all give him a standing ovation. Yes. What's wrong with that? All right, look at me. Stay standing. I'm almost done. Stay standing. Let me ask you a question, just so we can clear this up. I really want to receive emails this week. I'm welcoming emails. If it's wrong to give Jesus a standing ovation for dying on the cross, we took a while to stand. Most of us stayed seated. Most of us Baptists have a hard time with the first three rows of these motorcycle fanatics. (laughs) These guys that wear weird clothes and have long hair. You know what I mean? I mean, come on, these guys are a little different. So we stay seated, I'll tell you, but we'll give a standing ovation to the valedictorian of our Christian school when she gives her speech. Hey, if we're not going to give Jesus a standing ovation, don't you dare stand for anybody else. Am I right? 
So all I want to say is I'm not scolding you. I love you. All I'm saying is that wasn't wrong. That wasn't disruptive. That was proper. We're talking about Jesus. I, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if most of us feel as if to be a fanatic. I mean, Paul said, God forbid. God forbid that I should glory saving the cross. That's fanaticism. The guy's lost his mind. Come on. I mean, he is saying, I will not take any credit for anything that I do. I'll give it all to the cross. I don't know if I'm there. I don't know if I'm there. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I know this. When I see those words written on that cross and I think about what Jesus did for me, I can't help but to want to make sure that everybody in this building knows what that's all about. If you are in this building and you are not sure that if you died, you'd go to heaven, if you look at those two words and say, Preacher, preacher, you mean I can have my sin forgiven? You mean Jesus died for me? You mean I can have Jesus to save me today and I can go to heaven and spend an eternity with him forever? I can do that today? Yes! Yes, you can do that today. That's what this is all about. That's what this sermon series is all about. God nailed our sin to the cross. You say, yeah, but you know what I've done, preacher. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. He died for every man's sin. He blotted out all your transgressions. Not just the really bad ones. Not just the mild ones. (laughs) All of them. So let's bow our heads for a moment. Let's close our eyes. And I know normally we don't stand until the end, but hey, I think it's appropriate to stand as we begin in just a moment to sing. And I wonder today if someone would say, Pastor, pray for me, because as I see those words on that cross, I'm reminded of my sin, and I don't know that I'm saved. I'm not sure if I died, I'd go to heaven.